Standing in line at an airport is a bad experience. But if we're being honest with ourselves, shuffling through your wallet once you reach the front of that line just to realize you didn't have your driver's license, that's a worse experience. From boarding airplanes to purchasing alcohol, the technology that enables digital driver's licenses already exists. But adoption levels are slow. And the question is, what's the holdup? I always kind of liken it to chess and checkers. Checkers, super easy to play. Giving access to people is playing checkers. Giving access to people based upon them being who they say they are, that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, that they are where they're supposed to be, that they've been given approval for those assets, that's chess. There's this notion of authentication, authorization, approval, and today it's expanded into verification and proofing as well. So four key components. And just like chess, you learn how to play it relatively quickly, but you spend the rest of your life mastering it. At least 17 states in the continental U.S. have considered or implemented digital driver's licenses, but few have been able to create a system that leads to widespread adoption across the population and in government offices. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Albert sits down with Richard Bird, the Chief Customer Information Officer at Ping Identity, and he explains what the holdup is in getting you a digital driver's license. And he also sheds light on the biggest obstacle that is stalling the adoption process today. I hope you enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest, Chief Customer Information Officer at Ping Identity, Richard Bird. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be on. All right. Right out the gate for our audience members who do not know, tell us what is Ping Identity? Sure. Well, Ping Identity has been in uh, the identity solutions, uh, identity security space now for 20 years. And we, uh, we started out in the early days when uh, nobody could figure out how to federate access for all kinds of different applications uh, across all kinds of different operating systems. And, and then we've grown as our customer uh, base has expected us to evolve with technology. So we provide uh, cloud solutions uh, as well as uh, on-premises solutions for managing what the nerd in me would tell you is the identity control plane <laughs> across the security function. And as a result, also growing with our customers, we uh, have moved heavily into uh, the outward facing access control uh, that's commonly known as customer access management. Um, so we, uh, we do everything identity. There you go. And we've had a couple different identity companies on the show. So I definitely want to dive into your experience and what makes Ping unique. Tell us a little bit about your title, because it is a different title. Uh, we've, of course, we've heard of, you know, CIOs, chief information officers, and we've seen like, you know, chief customer experience officers, like, but chief customer information officer, it makes it sound like you're more in like the cybersecurity type side of the space, like, hey, data privacy encryption. <laughs> I'd love to hear exactly chief customer information officer. What is your principal responsibility? Well, first of all, it's the most unique uh, title in show business right now. Um, <laughs> I've, been, uh, I've been at Ping for about three years. And our founder and I came up with the, uh, the title uh, because we couldn't find anything that actually fit. Many of the folks that operate in a kind of function like I'm in um, are frequently called industry evangelists or 
you know, that type of, uh, you know, or a, um, a field CTO or CIO. And that's, that's not really uh, the role. I spend about 30% of my time uh, working directly with um, our largest customers or prospects around really, really difficult strategic issues. So I spent 20 plus years in corporate and I was a CIO. I've also been a chief information security officer. And I have the opportunity to be able to um, speak to folks at the level of their experience and challenges for stuff that goes beyond identity, right? How do I weave identity into all the other things that I need to resolve? 30% of my time is spent in engagements like this. So I speak, uh, matter of fact, in the last three years, I spoke hundreds of times, webinars, roundtables, keynotes, all that kind of stuff. And about 30% of my time is spent working closely with the market to understand where Ping's products need to go. And I'm also a member of the Identity Defined Security Alliance. So where identity needs to go. And about 10% of my time is, you know, being a grown-up and helping manage the organization as a member of the operating team. So it's a, I, I always laugh because having come from the operator's uh, back end or operator's, you know, angle on this, um, most of my colleagues and peers around the world uh, and friends, you know, firmly believe I have a dream job. And it's very difficult for me to argue with them that um, that's not true. So I want to go into the what you just mentioned there, how 30% of your time is really solving like really enterprise wide solutions or identity innovations, because most of us, we all have experience as a consumer of consumer of identity products. We all work. A lot of us work at companies where we need identity access to various different tools. And so there's different managers, identity managers where we would log into, we would authenticate us to our applications. We might have a local identity system on our hardware, so we have to log into our hardware. There's also, of course, access control. So like I need to, for example, before I come to work, maybe swipe a badge, I come in, then I log into my computer, then I log into another thing that gives me access to my software. And that's why I use it from a consumer perspective. From a consumer perspective, this seems to be like there's plenty of solutions in play here. So when you say like enterprise innovations and, and big enterprise solutions, you're talking beyond that, beyond giving mm-hmm. a person just access to the software they need. Yeah. What are you talking about? Like what kind of problems, I guess, are they bringing to your table? Because it's not that. It's not, it's not make yeah. sure Albert has access to the right software. I don't think that's what you're doing. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because the, the very first time that I was asked uh, to get involved with identity, I, I always say it this way. Virtually nobody in the identity business is here on purpose, right? As far as a profession, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. We all got here accidentally. And um, typically we all get here accidentally because there was a need and a gap from a resource standpoint. And somebody says, hey, I need somebody to do identity stuff. And you go, okay, that'll be me. And that's actually how my career in this particular function started. And uh, the corporate CIO that I worked for at the time that promoted me to this global function that I used to run in a very large bank it looked at, he stuck his hand out at me. He says, congratulations, you have the easiest job in the world. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, it's just given access to stuff. You know, like how hard can it be? Well, I always kind of liken it to chess and checkers. Checkers, super easy to play, right? And giving access to stuff to people is playing checkers. Giving access to people based upon them being who they say they are, that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing that they are where they're supposed to be, that they've been given uh, approval for those assets, whether that's internal, or external, um, that's chess. Yeah. And while you, you know, we break that, I shouldn't say we, I, I helped with my team a number of years ago to do business cases, you know, to try and convince people who thought it was just giving people access, how hard it was that, you know, there's this a notion of authentication, authorization, approval. And today 
it's expanded into verification and proofing as well. So four key components. And just like chess, you learn how to play it relatively quickly, but you spend the rest of your life mastering it. And that's where the strategic innovation piece comes, trying to help people understand that it's not just a multi-factor authentication call. And I kind of maybe sort of think that it's you, but I don't really know for sure, but I let you in anyhow. And then all of a sudden it's not you and there's no authorization monitoring or security invoked while you're in session. And the next thing you know, all your stuff is gone and the bad guys have left, right? Yeah. That's the chess match that we're involved in. And, and the challenge really is, is that for 30 years, I just said this in a keynote that I gave last, uh, last week. The challenge is, is that in 30 plus years, the basic framework, uh, the basic architectural diagram for uh, security, information security and cybersecurity hasn't changed. We put a database in the middle and we don't actually put a human being into the equation. And because we didn't put a human being into the equation, identity is one of the weakest uh, areas of control from a security standpoint. And when it's weak from a security standpoint, it's weak from an innovation and enablement standpoint as well. And it's we're just getting to a point in, in history now where people are really starting to process and understand that. Yeah. So, you know, when I think of what you just said, for example, 2FA, I remember back in the day, you got issued an RSA token. And I bring this up with every security person we talk, because it's a good time. We always got to go back. You got this mini calculator thing. It was like, a, you know, it literally looked like a calculator. It's really tiny, no buttons though, right? And it would change its numbers every whatever. And then you were given a pin. They're like, oh, by the way, your pin number starts uh, maybe four digits before four digits after. Yeah. And what everyone I knew did was they put a little sticky on the RSA thing and wrote their pin on it. Okay, so how secure was that? No, it was the illusion. Of, like I said, this is the illusion of security because yeah, it changes every minute. But what you're really saying is if I take one of these things, I'm pretty much going to be able to get into all your stuff, right? And now we have new ways of doing it where we have 2FA, right? But it doesn't change the fact that if I now have your phone unlocked, I still can get in it. And so there's new layers, like you were saying, the new layers of verification protocols that are going into place, such as what domain you're on, what, you know, where are you? Are you expected, are you expected to even access this software? So a good example is like, if you do database, if you're a, I don't know, a night shift worker. So then they would say like, oh, why is he going at it by day? This is odd. Talk to me about all the layers now that are going through to identify people, because the other side of that is most of us as consumers, we really want passive experiences where we don't have to actively do that much stuff. I know people, when they do even 2FA, they think it's annoying. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh my goodness, they got to send me a code. I got to type it in, <laughs> right? We all want things to just kind of like know who we are. We don't want to actively like be part of security. So you have that. You have two sides. You have more ways to break systems and you have more ways or I guess more demand to decrease consumer involvement, which means you're left in the middle trying to figure out all these ways to do it. And so I'd love to hear that part because you said like, you know, we always used to run it to a database, but we forgot the human element. I want to hear your perspective on this conundrum now. Well, it's crazy because, yeah, I talk to hundreds and hundreds of companies on an annual basis. And I'll get these conversations that kind of go, hey, we really want to do digital transformation for our customers and have their identity experience be frictionless and passwordless, right? And I, you know, I start asking them about two-factor authentication and multi-factor authentication. They go, yeah, well, you know, we got a program, but we haven't really, you know, gone there yet. And you go, well, here's the deal. Like you can't get from account to password to frictionless and passwordless in one jump. It doesn't happen. Right. And I think the big thing, when you look at those layers that people are misunderstanding 
about the possibility of, say, a device. It doesn't necessarily need to be a phone. You know, my, I point out that my smartwatch uh, today yeah. is smarter than my fo- smartphone was three years ago. And so, you know, whether it's wearables, whether it's, you know, mobile devices, um, there are these, these electronic imprints in our life that are giving us the flexibility to create a situation where we can triangulate tons of different information. Many of those pieces of information are not what you're providing directly, right? You know, the biometrics on the phone, the, uh, the telemetry, the geography, the location, the, all these different pieces can be aggregated uh, to do what's really important in the equation that you just talked about, which is higher tiers of stronger authorization or authentication. And that's where the, the entire you know, field is moving to, which is how can I get a really, really strong, high probability that the person that is engaging in this transaction is who they say they are, strong authentication, without intruding on that that end user to have to be engaged directly. The truth is, is that we can do it. We can now aggregate, you know, name the number of data points that you would like to aggregate about your <laughs> user behavior, right? I always, I always tell people like, if there was ever something somewhere that registered that I authenticated my phone with my left hand while I was walking and uh, I used um, a thumb biometric uh, somebody should call the police and go look for me because I'm probably my du- my head's in a duffel bag somewhere because that is completely not how I authenticate my device. Right? Hmm. We are very habit and ritual bound. In fact, that's how you find the bad guys when somebody breaks a known regular pattern. Right? Of all of this information that we can aggregate for you, there's a high likelihood that it's not who they say they are. The tricky part now is is that. Now that we have access and compute capability, we talked about this kind of fine-grained level authentication more than a decade ago, Um, actually built standards for it in the industry. And uh, we're finally technologically to a place where we can do it. The challenge is, is now how much of that, you know, aggregated, you know, behavioral, locational, informational data uh, do I have to accumulate? How many of those data points do I have to accumulate before I'm now into issues of privacy? before I'm now into issues of like, you know, if I have all this information, like I can track you. Yeah. Like that's, that's the, that's the entire piece of ATT and uh, Apple and what's going on between Apple and Facebook now. Right. Like if I have all this information, I can track you, I can follow you. I can, you know, persist and bug and, and challenge you. And that's the next frontier that we have to navigate through is, is now how do we navigate this, this very thin uh, separation between a great frictionless, uh, passwordless user experience, and then doing the right thing with all of this information that creates this powerful capability for strong authentication that doesn't actually require you to be directly involved. Like, how are we going to manage that? Yeah, the way you just described that, for example, if my device was my, if I was keying in one device as my big identifier, as you mentioned before, whether it's your smartwatch or your phone, I mean, literally we could see by patterns, like, are you even you? Like it, it would be insane. It's insane to think about like no one wants to be tracked to that level. But, you know, that's one of the things that we th- that you were mentioning that is it's pretty creepy is we're almost we're almost there. We're already there. We do have so much data on location behavior, as you mentioned before. Uh, and you mentioned before people are we're all pattern. We're all behavioral pattern. We whether we recognize it or not. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I, I remember working with a client. Um, big convenience store chain, 7-Eleven. I'm sure if you haven't heard of it, of course you've heard of it. So, I mean, but they actually they actually said they studied the flow of traffic and they studied the flows of traffic to determine whether to build 
on the right side or left side of the road. And I was like, what do you mean? And I said, because no one will make a left turn to a convenience store. I was like, what? They're like, yeah. So if, if we are on the right side of the main flow of traffic on the beginning of the shift, we know that people will stop for coffee. And like coffee is the number one reason why people stop at 7-Eleven. And then if there was a gas, then they could be on either side because if you were on the right flow on the inbound to work or the left flow on the outbound to work, you would ultimately be on the right on the left. But that we have people were patterns of traffic and they said like within the first 30 days of any 7-Eleven opening, they'll know if it's going to succeed. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, that seems in, implausible. It's like, because if we become a part of that person's habit or the people's habit, well, we will be continue to be a part of their habit. And if we're not, we're not. And you were just kind of mentioning before, like if you, if you're, someone picks up your phone with their, with the left hand, you'd be like, Hey, that's, that's not rich. That's not Richard. Yeah. That's not him. And so we're, we're almost there now, aren't we? Like, isn't it, do, are we there? Like, could you, could you authenticate everything from my cell phone? Because you just know it's me. I've carried it to, it was at my house for eight hours. It went on this route to my office. It drove at this like approximate yeah. speed because this is how this guy drives. All these things could be true. And yeah. Parking is another great example. We tend to kind of park in the same area every single time. Oh, yeah. Like it parked in the same area, walked and traversed from here. This has got to be him. Let me turn on the software. Well, and, and when we look at these, the realities of human behaviors and the, the predictability of patterns, it can be extremely powerful. It can be extremely helpful. To your point, aren't we already there? Yeah, the, the, we are there. Here's the problem is, is that the, the, the we are there part is just that all of the aggregation of this very interesting information that could have been used for um, you know, authentication and authorization of human beings was actually aggregated and used to track patterns, uh, determine buying uh, behaviors, and then you know push a bunch of political ads that you know incline <laughs> towards your you know particular um, you know view of the world. And you know this is I mean it's it's interesting to see you know it, it, this notion of the social dilemma because it creates a problem for us in identity because all of this information that uh, rich you know content and contextual information about each human being could be extremely valuable to us in creating better and better security models for humans, right? Yeah. It doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily translate into, you know, better and better security models for the enterprise um, because we have a disconnect between, you know, this notion that you supposedly own the data that you, you uh, are associated with in, inside any company now based on any number of, you know, different types of regulations but you're actually not attached to it. <laughs> like, like there's no connection between your identity and this data that's supposedly yours. And so there's a, there's a big gap on that side of the equation, but on the, on the human empowerment side of the equation, you know, if we can get past the, you know, we saw with this rise of huge amounts of pushback against vaccine passports mm -hmm. and paying identity has a vaccine passport, right? And, and we said, look, the, the information about the passport is going to be resident on your device. It won't be any place else except for, at the vaccine provider and yours. And, you know, you hear people go, oh, well, that's big brother. I'm like, it's on your device. Like, like we, we have <laughs> ways to empower you. We can make you have control and be able to share that information as you want to. Well, somebody else is going to be keeping the information. And this is where we start to get into the, you know, where the future is going uh, around this notion of a, a decentralized transactional identity, right? So that you know, the CVS or the Walgreens has the piece of information that's only relevant to having given you a vaccine, the positive results, the information that's associated with your uh, biometrics location, all that kind of stuff is yours, right? And that kind of a decentralization now introduces the possibilities of security 
but we do still need to get over a huge amount of um, anxiety and paranoia that was created by the aggregation of this information for marketing purposes for the last decade. Yeah. And that's why I think it's really super interesting to see the, the results that are coming out with Apple as it relates to, uh, you know, privacy transparency um, and the ability to opt out, you know, since April the 26th, like 96% of people are going, nope, don't track me. And this, this is super fascinating because We've been told since, you know, the mid 2000s, you know, around this notion of a privacy paradox that um, human beings didn't care about their security and privacy, except when you actually give people a choice instead of a cookies button that doesn't even let you refuse it. Yeah. Right. All of a sudden, human beings are going, nope, I like privacy and security. And I think that that probably has the biggest uh, potential impact on uh, what the future is going to look like uh, over all the things that we've already covered. Yeah, you know, explain a little bit more because that's one of the things that is in the hot debate right now, or not even, it's not a debate, it's just ha- what's happening, right? For anyone who's not familiar with what Richard's talking about, the new iOS update, the people that have been marketing have known about this for now a while. Apple announced, it was actually almost last year. I think they were la- announced last year that the newer updates of iOS would now allow users to block apps from tracking all your behaviors. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, a product like Facebook, literally knows everything that you're doing, even when you're not actually using the app. It knows what you're looking for, what you're visiting, what you, you know, when you go to Facebook and go to something other app, it would, it would allow you to say like, oh, okay, this person likes to check the weather every day at, at five. We think he gets off work or she gets off work, you know, something like that. So that, that, that came and that, and that started, that started rolling out, as you said, more very recently where people could opt out. You know, one of the things I think about is like, you know, what, what does it mean for us? You know, you mentioned before, given the choice, 90 plus percent of people actually would opt out now that they see that. So what does this mean for the identity space? Because like you were, because we're getting kind of exciting. I was getting kind of excited. We're like, we're right. We're basically there. I can don't have to enter a username and password again. But then I'm like, dude, are we falling right back to it where my password manager is my lifeblood? Like I can't function without it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether or not, um, and, you know, Ping is, is definitely working hard in this space. It'll be interesting to see if a notion of a, a personal identity, you know, propagates. Um, it, there's every indication that it will. Creating, you know, Apple's gone down that path. So Apple actually made its first announcement, WWDC, about do business with us and you'll be more private and have more security about three years ago. Okay. And they've doubled down every year, right? So that wasn't the announcement that they were going to create this transparency model of you can opt out. Uh, but they just came out and said it, right? And it was really funny because the next day, uh, you can tell I speak on this particular one a lot. The next day, the CEO of, of Google Alphabet posted a tweet, which I think is hilarious because <laughs> apparently this is how CEOs and social media companies co- uh, communicate with each other. They do. And he posted a tweet about, <laughs> he was like, hey, look, Apple, you can't say that about us. You know, that's that's unfair. That's unreasonable. You can't say that we're not protecting our users uh, and our, our customers and and not giving them privacy. And now, if we reel forward like three years, it's it's very clear that Google is working on uh, similar similar capabilities, as is Samsung Pay and mm-hmm. a number of others. Now they're taking a wallet based approach, you know, where you can store credentials that have been provided to you by some other source. And in the EU, actually, under the new digital identity requests that came out two or three weeks ago. It's the same kind of thing. They're even going down to the level of going, you should be able to get like your welding certificates as a verifiable credential from you know, the welding institute that you went to, right? 
it's the beginnings of creating a model where I have a say as a human being in authenticating myself. And where we see this happening you know, rapidly here in the United States, it's actually been driven by the last 15 months in the pandemic. You know, new employees started and they couldn't onboard because you still had to go in and sign a couple of pieces of paperwork for the federal government, or, you know, you needed to sign up for benefits of some kind, or, you know, frankly, um, you didn't need to sign up for benefits because you're a bad guy and you took $86 billion worth of uh, federal unemployment funds out of the system. And, you know, most of that money that was stolen uh, through uh, digital and fraud means was because there was no authentication of the human being on the other side of the benefits chain. And most of that money ended up going into terrorist networks and uh, hostile nation states, right? And when we look at the devastation that really doesn't get a lot of reporting right now, all of a sudden, you know, people all around the world, different legislatures and, and companies were like, wow, like identity is really important. Like if I can't prove that you are who you say you are, I'm going to lose a ton of money. And I'm going to have a lot of, you know, geopolitical risk and a lot of nation state risk. So we're seeing this, this rapid move to a model to put power into people's hands to prove that they are who they say they are. I'm extremely encouraged about it. I've been talking about this model for a decade, but we have huge operational you know, things that we need to take. Like, think about every single transaction currently in the United States that depends on you presenting a stupid piece of plastic with your picture on it. <laughs> it doesn't even, I don't even know how, I don't even think you're talking about a credit card or driver's license. Just your driver's license. I don't even think I pull that out anymore. It's almost never. <laughs> well, so when we think about, when we think about what it's attached to process wise though, yeah. it's attached to a lot of things, right? Yeah. It's just that it's in temporal and time of need. Right. So I don't pull it out like all the time, but here in Colorado, like if you're not even remotely close to 50, you get, you get carded every time you get a drink, right? Every time, mm -hmm. right? And, and the question becomes, like, what happens when that driver's license is not digital? Everybody's got to change their process, right? And, and tech's not the issue. We can create a digital driver's license. There's several that are in production already. But tech's not the issue. And tech's not the issue with what we've talked about with what the future looks like. What's going to be the really big issue is the massive change in business process to accept digital credentials. First, we give people the power to be able to present them. Second, we're going to have to go through this uh, interesting period of growing pains where all these business processes are going to have to be changed in order to accept a digital credential because this is how far behind identity is in, in the concept of a digital world. Like we've baked all of our processes around identity around these stupid manual and uh, analog processes. So I was hoping you dive in a little bit more because it doesn't feel like the process would change that much because if I have a digital identity, it's probably going to be deliverable through whatever device I have connected to the cloud, like whether my phone or like you said, your watch or mm. I don't know, a chip embedded in my forehead. I don't know what it is, right? <laughs> something. I'm going to need to present information, but I have to physically have something in order to present it. I, I think that's true. Yeah. And then the other thing is going to be, I need a scanner to receive it, right? So there needs to be some type of scan to receive it. Unless all of our identities are going to just be tied to fingerprints and we just go fingerprinting everything. I don't, I don't know. Boy, the, the, the fingerprint one is interesting. <laughs> another time, another, another conversation, we can talk about all the problems that fingerprints create. Oh, yeah. That, I, I envision a world if that existed. It would be straight out of like, I think, Demolition Man, right? Like people would steal eyes and thumbs. Like they'd be like, that, that would be the new crime. Like, uh, you just got my thumb cut off. <laughs> well, and I'm, and I'm prior military service. So I actually have a lot of friends that have missing digits, which creates another set of problems. Okay, well, there you um, go. <laughs> yeah, but I, I like to use the example of the digital driver's license because I think it's the one that's kind of most pressing right now, because now there's this big, with the executive order uh, that came from uh, the current administration, 
there's a big move around um, taking the real ID physical card, yeah. which actually is a tremendous improvement, by the way. I'm not slamming plastic cards. Yeah. Um, the real ID uh, construct and standard has a tremendous amount of security built into these, these new driver's licenses and state IDs. Yeah. You need one to fly by, I think, October this year, right? October. Yeah. Yeah. They won't take traditional license. It's either yep. passport or real ID. Yep, exactly. And it, because it's a strongly authenticated credential, right? But now, you know, like, so two years ago now, almost, Ping helped the state of Colorado build uh, the first uh, digital driver's license in production in the United States. It took the Colorado State Police more than a year to get to a point where they put out a statement saying, we are ready to accept the digital driver's license as a valid form of identification. Why did it take a year? Well, we think about this business process piece and the complications. So if I get pulled over by a police officer on a traffic stop and he says, I'd like to see your license and it's on my phone and I unlock my phone and I hand it to that police officer with the digital driver's license, there's an interesting civil liberties and uh, search and uh, un- unlawful search mm. question about if I hand a police officer an unlocked phone and he starts to go into other areas of my phone, what do I do now? Yeah. Right. What is, you know, it, are there bars? I mean, if he has reasonable suspicion, now all of a sudden he's like, hey, I'm going to look at some other stuff on your phone. So, you know, that uh, that alone is is, you know, kind of one of those issues like, you know, and what if I, um, you know, what if I present the digital driver's license? But there's an inconsistency, especially since it's supposed to be, you know, continuously uh, current. There's an inconsistency in the database. Now, what becomes the source of truth mm. if I'm no longer even relying on my my plastic card as a backup? I mean, these are these are baby steps, you know, that that you're seeing relative to these kind of challenges. Same kind of thing with if I present a digital driver's license instead of a physical driver's license and a utility bill. When I go in for you know residency status for college, like I've decided to live in, actually I have a family member that did this. I decided to live part time and and work in Hawaii, or pardon me, work part time in Hawaii and spend the year taking a course loaded at technical college so I can get residency so I can have cheaper tuition. But now I show up with my physical driver's license and my utility bill to you know or some other thing that confirms my address. You know, what happens when the digital driver's license makes that irrelevant? Like, do those same organizations, universities or uh, social services organizations, you name it, do they go, okay, a digital driver's license is enough because it's a strongly verified credential. These are the kind of, you know, kind of seismic shifts that are going to start to happen. And don't forget, like many of these processes, I'm going to be cautious when I say this, but many of these processes are what require us to have substantial numbers of people and manpower, a human power necessary to do all those manual processes. You start to take those manual processes away, you start to take jobs away. Yeah. Right. And you start to change change the landscape in that way as well. Right. Yeah. Um, I just, I just experienced that. I went on a trip internationally and uh, I used, I'm a global entry member and right. You just go in and like, I didn't have yet to show my passport. I literally just stuck my face in the camera and took a picture of me and, <laughs> and it let me pass. I don't know. I don't even know how it works, to be honest. But then I saw the rows and rows and rows of people that are checking the more traditional way that you talked about, which is I need to check your boarding pass. I need to check your passport. I need to check your documents. I need to, you know, I don't know what they do. Ask like questions to see like, why were you? Because this is Miami airport. So a lot of people are returning from South America, Central America, 
They ask you all kinds of interrog- interrogation like questions, but there's a lot of people to your point. There's a lot of people that do that are part of that process to make sure whoever it is they are, say they are. And then there, that brings up another question, right? Which is it won't be universally adopted very quickly. Meaning there's going to be people, you know, in that, in my use case right there, there are people from other countries that won't adopt it as quickly. We, we already know people don't adopt things that quickly inside the United States. They had to delay real ID because that few people were actually going towards it. So they're like, okay, this is a problem. I mean, we've seen that with all types of different things. Whenever they done driver's license changes, things like that, people are very, we as humans, back to your original point, we are very behavior driven. Like we don't change that often. Yeah. And the adoption question is actually, you know, a question in two parts. The first is, is, is do you present a solution that is valuable? Yeah. Right. And so anytime in human history, if you if, if you present a solution, a product, an approach that says you have to do this because I told you to, right? <laughs> you know, the government regulation is the prime example of that. You have to do this because I told you to. It's always met with tremendous resistance, yeah. right? I always go back to the seatbelts and motorcycle helmets uh, example. Yeah. There's still not all states require helmets. There's still states yeah. that don't require helmets. <laughs> yep. And they leave it up to personal choice. And if a, if a person doesn't feel like a, um, a helmet contributes more value than, you know, a wind in my face and, you know, experiencing the open road. I mean, I ride, right. And, you know, if they, if they don't feel like it creates more value, they go, man, I'm not going to do it. Right. So when we look at, uh, this is what I think is really interesting about real ID. When we look at real ID, um, and I, I'm very familiar with, uh, the, the folks that really started this effort quite a number of years ago. Um, and they were really clever about it. They said, we're not going to create a national identity. Like nobody's going to want it. Nobody's going to adopt it. Right. But what does everybody use all the time? Maybe a driver's license. What if I made the driver's license easier to use? What if I made the driver's license in a format that just made it a no brainer? Like it flash, here you go. I don't even need to reach my wallet anymore. Right. I can just turn my phone around. And all of a sudden, you know, people were like, oh, cool. Like I can get on an airplane. I can, you know, and those benefits that are associated with, with the real ID construct of the physical or digital are, are really going to start to grow and expand now that we're going to get to full adoption, not just adoption at the human layer, which is the first part of that, but the second part is adoption and more importantly, interoperability, right? So like, is my digital driver's license going to be recognized when I travel to the UK? I mean, it's a, it's a strong authenticator. If you think about the real ID driver's license, it has a lot of similarities with a passport. Mm-hmm. So if I present it, like what right does the UK government have to say that, no, that's not you. You got to present something else. Actually, the interoperability piece has been raised again in the EU where they're saying, you know, whatever digital identity pathway you choose to uh, invoke in a wallet and a, and a digital identity form, it has to uh, automatically interoperate with every other country in the EU. And that adoption, I think, will be the more challenging. I think that if we create digital identity pathways that that make life easier for human beings, they'll adopt it all day long, right? Yeah. As long as we don't tell them they got to use it. Right? <laughs> and then in the case of interoperability, I think that I think that there's going to be a lot of ground battles between uh, not just countries but corporations. Yeah. You know, like Apple has worked with. T- I know we keep, I keep bringing Apple up, but yeah. Apple's working with the TSA to put a digital driver's license into an Apple wallet. How weird is that going to be if they only get, you know, 20 states that are willing to do that? Now you got 30 states. So now I step up there and now the poor, you know, Border Patrol and TSA guys got to go, 
okay, so like what state do you reside in? Yeah. Can you show me your digital identity? Sorry, it doesn't work, you know, for that state. <laughs> like I said, this is the this is the age and stage of growing pains as it relates to digital identity, but not because of tech. Back to your point, we're there. Yeah. We're already there. Yeah. Right. It, it's because we've got to introduce a, a new notion of security and a new notion of privacy and a new notion of identity into the global market. So, well, whatever it is that makes it easier to, let's say, get through secured gates, I'm all for, right? Because global entry, great experience. I saw the people waiting in line. That's an awful experience, right? <laughs> whatever makes it more protect, gives me more financial protection. So that no one can take the loans out of my name. I've been a victim. Well, not me personally. Please don't pick on me. There's nothing to take. But like my wife's been a victim of uh, tax fraud. You know, when we filed for our taxes and like the IRS said, hey, you've already filed your taxes. Like, no, we haven't. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, we've already, you know, anything that diminishes those things. And of course, on the consumer software side, I think we're always going to be looking for easier ways to just always authenticate and know these tools to know who we are. It's an interesting space. And I, I love the perspective. The tech sounds like, you know, I, based on what you said, the technology's there. The question is the people, the processes. Are we ready for, are we ready for it, really? Mm-hmm. Well, Richard, it was awesome having you on the show. But before you leave, it's actually time for the lightning round. And the lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Richard, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of identity and ping, uh, ping identity specifically. So that our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? Absolutely. All right. You t- told us earlier before this recording started that one of your most prized possessions is you have the signatures of Tupac and Biggie on the same piece of paper. Yep. Well, you got to tell me which of the two is better. <laughs> uh, it, I love them both. I love them both. <laughs> and I love uh, what both of them brought to the industry. So I can't, I, I can't ever choose. And I never, I never was down with the East Coast, West Coast beef. Um, I, believe, uh, I believe in everybody. <laughs> hey, it took them. It basically took them from us. Yeah. I mean, that's how tragic it was. So you, you've displayed a big variety or taste for music. Uh, you got Daft Punk posters. You got Beyonce posters behind you. You got the signatures from, you know, if I, if I run into you and it's a casual day and you're listening to music, what are you likely listening to? Oh, Everything really like uh, the last, you know, several years, uh, my hobby, one of my hobbies uh, has been music festivals. And I've, I've seen everybody from, you know, Lizzo when she was playing on a stage in front of a hundred people, you know, <laughs> a leotard and a flute um, in 2016. Wow. To you two do Joshua Tree and the only festival appearance that they've ever done in their entire career, you know, post Malone, Macklemore, Nathaniel Wright living the night sweats. I, I, I recently have been kind of getting into two things that are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. I've been getting into a lot of kind of roots, Americana music, uh, Shovels and Rope, uh, the Avid Brothers, Nathaniel Wright left in the Night Sweats, but I've also been doing a lot of Taylor Swift lately. <laughs> so I would say, especially with the Taylor Swift re-recordings, like I would say that, you know, on any given day, it's a 50-50 shot. You're going to hear something kind of along those two lines. <laughs> That is a wide variety. Now, you're also a very, you know, you're one of the more dynamic guests. I can tell by the hobbies. All right. You also mentioned earlier that you're a motorcycle rider as well. What kind of motorcycle do you ride? Do you ride with a helmet? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to kind of do a mea culpa here. I ride, but I came to riding very, very late. Actually, just a couple of years ago when I moved here to Colorado. And because, because I am too old to learn how to shift elegantly, I've rolled into uh, 300 CC scooters. Okay. So, 
So I'm a Vespa guy. And, uh, and I, now I'd like to hop my Vespa, Vespa up because actually before I got into uh, two wheels, um, I've been a long time uh, a vintage car guy. So I've had, as a matter of fact, I had to sell about eight or nine cars when I moved out here to Colorado. <laughs> and, uh, and I've had everything from 66 Mustangs that are, you know, hopped up to uh, a 63 Galaxy 500 convertible on, on uh, you know, hydraulics on air you know, straight down to the ground. I, I love, I love old metal. I had to get out of the cars though, because my wife was tired of, of only 20% of the collection working at any given time. So <laughs> as is the case with vintage vehicles, I mean, it's a labor of love, but also yeah. money. It's a lot of money <laughs> to keep the cars running. <laughs> Absolutely. So you're, you ride Vespas, vintage car guy. You're also, now I forgot, now I, off the top of my head, I forgot which liquors you're a connoisseur of it sounds like you are also a connoisseur of nice spirits <laughs> tell us about that because you're working on a tiki bar it looks like behind you yeah well it, you know it started kind of when i was in the early stages of my career and i was um, pretentious because i hung out with a lot of pretentious older executives and everyone was drinking scotch problem was i found out after a few years i really hate the way scotch tastes um <laughs> tired of waking up like i licked a burning tire you know the next morning um, so I got into bourbon and whiskey and built a pretty sizable collection around that. I would say I don't collect, um, I drink. Uh, so, so virtually every bottle that I own has, has had a seal cracked. And then uh, we, we moved into a new house that happened to have an original wood panel bar from the early 60s. And we thought, well, it'd be great to do a tiki bar. So I've been teaching myself all the different varieties of rum. And I actually found that rum is kind of like, like one of the most diverse spirits so many different variations, so many different places around the world where it's made. Um, it's made it really, really interesting. But I have to laugh. I'm mentoring a young man who's been a bartender for 15 years, craft bartender. Um, and he's uh, currently uh, you know, in, uh, in school for cybersecurity. And he came over to the house the other day and he says, I just can't believe it. He goes, you know, I've been tending bar for 15 years and I want to be in cybersecurity. And he says, you're in cybersecurity and you're trying to be a bartender. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I don't know if that's my exit path, um, you know, mixing, uh, mixing flaming drinks at, uh, at my own place one day. But I always like to keep my options open. There you go. Richard, it was awesome having you today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing some of the work you're doing at Ping Identity and some of your vision for the future of identity. I agree with you 100%. It's already here. It's just a matter of can we as a society really accept it. Uh, it's, I mean, listen, the day that I don't have to type in a password, I still am waiting for that day. It's not here yet, but I can't wait. Me neither. <laughs> and I, I embrace it. So I can't wait till we get there. Like, I don't, I don't just, I don't just push it as a vision. I'm like, that's what I want to. So <laughs> awesome. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thank you. I truly appreciate it.